welcome back to Cast from the Past, the Rice Historical Reviews podcast. Uh, my name is Annie, and my co-director, Grace Stewart, and I will be running the podcast this year. Our first episode is going to focus on the United Kingdom after this point of kind of turmoil and um, change following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, their longest reigning monarch, and then also a lot of turnover in the prime minister's office, among other um, topical issues. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Nitz, an associate professor of history and the co-director of the Politics, Law, and Social Thought Program here at Rice to discuss what this period means for the UK's past, present, and future. Uh, Dr. Paul Nitz, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, We are so excited to have you. Um, To begin, would you mind just introducing yourself and kind of what your research focuses on? Thanks, Annie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm an historian of early modern, the early modern world, uh, and my first book was on uh, early modern Britain, and more specifically the role of the monarchy uh, and the way that education became an important part of uh, enhancing that in the 16th and 17th centuries. All right, perfect. Well, we, uh, we're so glad you're on with us today. Um, our first question is just with the new monarch and all this turmoil in the prime minister's office, obviously with Boris Johnson resigning, then Liz Truss's incredibly short tenure. Um, what can history tell us about the future of the United Kingdom, both uh, domestically and then also internationally with its relations? Well, you're right that there's been a lot of changeover. Uh, Friends of mine in the UK who are medics are saying that the standard test for concussion, which used to be, you know, what is your name? What day of the week is is it? Who is the prime minister? Is is no longer a test they can run uh, because, you know, the wrong answer is actually not any indication of of mental unwellness anymore. Um, It's certainly certainly not the most tumultuous uh, experience that a British... uh, that the British monarchy and and the office of the prime minister have have gone through. In fact, you know it's three about three hundred years since the office of the prime minister came into being. And and uh, Robert Walpole, uh, who is not called the doesn't call himself prime minister, but is in fact the first prime minister, um, uh, comes out of a period where. Britain had been involved in the incredibly expensive war of the Spanish succession Um, in the early 18th century. It was uh, also coming out of the the bursting of the South Sea bubble when members of the elite and the monarchy uh, sort of ran a pyramid scheme uh, associated with transporting slaves to uh, the um, Spanish and Portuguese colonies in the Americas. And Robert Warhol had to kind of evolve... um, the British uh, polity through and out of those incredibly damaging social and and financial moments of transition at the same time as as being the appointee of a pretty unpopular new German monarch, uh, George George I and then George II, uh, who were replacing the the Stuart dynasty and were culturally uh, really having to come to grips with a, a country that was quite different from what, you know, what they were used to. So the, the office of the Prime Minister has always been a, a pretty tough one. And I think what what we're seeing at the moment is, it, it, in terms of the, the office of the Prime Minister itself, a kind of probably an end point in 12 years of Tory government. It, it, it's... it's Within the the the, of course, a, a British prime minister is is elected by their party. 
the Tory party rather than by the electorate as a whole, um, unlike the American president. And so there is the possibility for much more transition in the leading, leading political office in the country than is afforded by the, the American model. And, and thus we've had, I think, six prime ministers in the last five years, uh, something to that effect. And, and, and part of that is, is really just the turmoil uh, of COVID, the turmoil of, uh, created by um, the Russian invasion of, uh, of, of the Ukraine, uh, but also just the fact that the, the Tory party have been in office now for a very long time. And as always, um, other forces are, are, are now pushing back against their government. You know, this is the first time nurses have been on strike, I think, since the nurses' union was created. So people are getting pretty sick of the Tory government, and that's that's what we're seeing um, uh, affecting number 10. But, but to pull back a little bit um, and, and consider the monarchy too, uh, this is, of course, a, 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 an unprecedented time um, to be living in Britain. Almost no one remembers... Is no one who is still alive remembers a time when Elizabeth II wasn't the face on their coins, when they weren't singing God Save the Queen. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a, a toss-up, I think, whether we could say that 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 Liz Truss's whether whether the Queen killed Liz Truss or Liz <laughs> Truss killed, killed the Queen in some ways, because I, you know I, I think it's arguable that her time in Parliament would time in Number Ten would have been considerably shorter, about two weeks shorter, had it not been for the break in in the normal runnings of business that followed Elizabeth II's death. Uh, she might have bought Liz a couple of more, a couple more weeks. Um, you know, that's 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 one for the late night comedians to, to figure out. <laughs> um, would you? What would you say then has been that you, in your opinion, might have been one of the most unstable periods? If this kind of isn't perhaps in the top three, what what do you think is the most <laughs> um, unstable? That's a tough one. I think. The, the, the end of the last Labor government was also a period uh, of considerable instability. Um, the end of, of Margaret Thatcher's government was a period of intense instability. You know, I, the swings and pendulums of British politics, you know, the, the era of the miners' strike in the UK, I think would be hard to top as a period of, of intense ideological and, and economic turmoil. Bizarrely, periods of, of actual international warfare result in a great deal of internal stability yes. in Britain and in British politics. Um, it, it's when the country isn't actually being directly threatened um, but has time to, to really come to grips with its own internal and internecine uh, ideological conflicts that things really get nasty. Thinking about kind of some, I suppose, ideological conflicts, um, there's been lots of discussion, particularly after Elizabeth II's death, of whether the monarchy is still relevant and useful to have. Uh, do you think it is still relevant? There is still a place for it in modern day Britain and the modern world? Or is it kind of a relic of the past? I, I love old things. I'm an historian. Um, I am also, in terms of my personal identification, uh, a small R Republican, um, meaning that I would far prefer to live under a, a, a democracy than a, a constitutional monarchy, let alone the unadulterated hard drug that is that is monarchical government. I think the majority of the British public disagree with me. Uh, and as long as that remains the case, I don't see the demise of monarchical government anytime 
soon. The the real question um, that we're seeing being answered, I think, now is whether Prince Charles can arrest the gradual but constant diminution of monarchical uh, glamour, monarchical popularity um, that has protected the institution so far. Uh, and, and he is exceeding expectations, I think, on that front. Uh, you know, the more eggs that get thrown at him, and another one was was thrown today, uh, and the more graciously he responds to that, uh, the more he seems like the kind of, of steady hand you want on the tiller. Uh, he's, he's, he's been a bit like uh, James the Sixth and First, in some respects, um, the monarch of of Scotland who succeeds to the English throne as well, uh, to unite Britain in 1603. He's a he's a would be philosopher king. He, uh, he thinks of himself at least as a um, a political thinker, uh, and and he's a bit like a broken clock. Um, you know, wrong most of the time, but strikingly correct two hours a day or two 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 instances in the day. Uh, and and environmentalism has, of course, been the area in which uh, Charles uh, was ahead of his time as a prince, and he is he is uh, as long as he continues to stand for issues that like the environment, uh, are hard to quibble with um, when one can get stuck into environmental radicals, but one can hardly argue that the environment itself isn't a good cause. As long as he sticks with that kind of thing, I can imagine that he's going to uh, be able to pass the throne successfully onto his son, his very popular son, and, and, and his son's wife. It's been suggested that Charles will likely slim down the monarchy. Do you think mm-hmm. there will be any backlash to this, or do you think this will be regarded by most Britons as as a good step towards modernizing the monarchy and kind of reducing that perhaps overwrought glamour? Yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be anyone who disagrees. I think uh, that as long as the core members of the family, those directly in line to the throne, are uh, regularly in the public eye and are, are performing those those apparently um, onerous uh, responsibilities of, of being a royal, then uh, people get the service, they get the glamour without the excessive cost uh, that is associated with the upkeep of multiple palaces and, and all the staff that are needed to support the royal lifestyle and royal civic duties. I think the, in addition to slimming down the monarchy itself, I think the other move that would be wise but is is perhaps less likely to occur is going to be greater transparency with respect to royal financing. It's it's emerging uh, increasingly that... Well, firstly, we, we don't actually know the extent of royal um, royal wealth, and partly that's because the royal family is not respons- has no responsibilities under the Freedom of Information Act. Turns out they also have no responsibilities as royal households under the Racial Discrimination Act or the Sex Discrimination Act, or many of these other pesky little details that that help govern life in the rest of Britain. Uh, and part of that is because, according to existing historical practice, the monarch in Britain is uh, allowed to provide a priori consent, meaning also right of veto, to any bill that pertains to their households 
or their estates. So they have a kind of red pen that they've been able to use to exclude themselves from the rule of law. And amongst other things, you know, they, they, they can't be arrested. Um, the police actually can't do anything on a royal estate without asking the Queen's permission first. I think trimming, or the, now the King's permission first, I think trimming back some of that privilege, uh, providing greater transparency about the ways in which royal finances and, and the personal wealth of the person who occupies the throne, it, its extent, its holdings, um, will also be helpful in demonstrating a modern monarchy that is glamorous but uh, in touch with its people at a time of, of striking austerity in Britain. Charles is also considered a bit less popular than his mother, um, and though perhaps maybe with if he kind of stays his course as very steady and supporting causes that most people regard as popular, such as the environment. That might improve his popularity, but still it was particularly after his mother's death. The articles and podcasts and interviews that talked a lot about how countries are really rethinking their relationship within the Commonwealth to the United Kingdom. Do you think we will see a significant shrinking um, in the size of the Commonwealth in the coming years. That was already happening in the years preceding uh, Elizabeth I's death, and it was um, a, a striking move that she had to make a formal request to the, the, the Commonwealth um, body, which is the, the Assembly of All Commonwealth States, to formally recognise her son or agree to formally recognise Charles before her death as, as the heir because Caribbean countries were starting to walk out the door just this week. Quebec has been the most recent province in Canada to, to pass um, a, a law that will no longer require people in certain positions to take any kind of oath of loyalty to the British monarchy or to the monarchy, the monarch of Canada, who is the monarch of Britain as well. I think we're going to continue to see gradual walking away, uh, particularly amongst colonies that suffered badly um, under British occupation from, um, from the Commonwealth of Nations. At the same time as we see it being joined by other countries who are hoping through associations with through stronger diplomatic and educational and health-related ties with countries like Britain and, and Australia, New Zealand and Canada to provide uh, a development opportunities. Kind of thinking back to, again, the popularity for Americans, one of the key ways we, although uh, clearly there was an entire war fought over separating ourselves from the monarchy, there has always been a strong glamorization of it. One of the just many, many, many movies and TV shows that has really come into popularity right now is The Crown. Um, have you seen it? Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a real fan. A, a fan in a, in a very critical way, but a fan nonetheless. Do you think it is harming the monarchy more than it is helping it, or does its entire existence help keep it in discussion and thus in people's minds as kind of a present-day entity? That's a great question. Question, and I think your second suggestion is very perceptive. I have been really interested in the way Republicans 
hate the crown and monarchists hate the crown too. And I think if you've managed to get those two groups to agree, you must be doing something right. Uh, the the depiction of um, Charles the the third in this series, I think, has been quite generous. Uh, there's a, a charming episode that, that highlights his philanthropy and, and shows him awkwardly attempting to break dance with, <laughs> with the youth from, you know, the London East End. And you know, it, 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 it depicts him as, as having his, his heart and his money in the right place and, and, is, and as listening to people who need to be heard. Uh, at the same time, of course, um, there are strident objections from monarchists themselves who who, fo- who are who are very concerned, particularly because in this most recent series we have witnessed the the breakdown, of course, of the Wales's marriage, but but even more excruciatingly, the conversations between Charles uh, Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla, um, that as a teenager in the 90s made me cringe and want to curl up and die when I heard them. Uh, but also, of course, the treatment of Diana, which uh, is, is, is the, the point, uh, the, the, the sticking point, I think, for many British and many American fans or, or, or those who follow the royal family. You know, that, that is the great crime that is hard to wash it's hard to wash the, the, the blood off the king's hands for that one in some ways at least in my opinion diana has taken almost a sort of occasionally the martyr-esque figure and obviously we're seeing now the new trailer for the former duke and duchess of sussex for, on netflix ironically i guess netflix must have some monopoly over the british monarchy and television but clearly that has been key really a key talking point. Now, I, I believe there is probably more division in how people perceive uh, particularly Meghan than Diana. But do you think this will finally, there's been a great discussion with Diana, with Kate Middleton before, or now the um, Princess of Wales before she married Prince William. And now obviously Harry and Meghan, do you think there will be ever a reckoning with how the British press in particular treats the women who marry into the monarchy, and obviously with Meghan, there was a racial undertone too uh, that made it particularly um, harmful and cruel. Um, do you so? Do you think there will be any reckoning in the near future, or do you think it will kind of continue as is? My my guess is that as long as there are sexist and racist people in the world, uh, that the wives of Windsor, uh, particularly not white wives of Windsor, are in for a a, a tough ride. Um, The extraordinary animus, animus in a negative sense, uh, that is um, focused on the, the consort of any royal, of any monarch is, is not new, uh, particularly Queens. Um, you know, one, one only needs to look at the, the great effort that Henry VIII put into having his wife, his second wife, Anne Boleyn, crowned separately to him, and 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 at the same time, you know, read the um, the reports of the Londoners failing to come out for her coronation, refusing to cheer or insisting on cheering. God, God save King Catherine, Queen Catherine, um, after Anne Boleyn's crowning. To 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 know that um, 
the uh, wife of Prince George, um, Carolyn of Brunswick, Prince George, who becomes George III, you know, her life and her experience, um, their attempts to divorce through um, the the House of Lords, which is the highest court in the land in Britain, offers a a really frightening parallel to the experience uh, of of Diana and Charles during their divorce as well. You know, these are ways... If if we see um, if we see Rishi Sunak's arrive uh, arrival at, at number ten as an example of how Britain has moved on with respect to race, I think we have to see the treatment of um, all uh, princess and queen consorts um, uh, as as examples of the way in which the past continues to um, hang heavily with respect to the way British people feel about gender and the way they feel about race. Kind of on that note, what do you think uh, Rishi Sunak's role as the first United Kingdom Prime Minister of Colour signifies, specifically given that he is of um, Indian descent, which is, you know, there's that long, long history of British imperialism there. What do you think uh, that signifies um, for Britain's, you know, past, its present and its future? It would be lovely to present this as the revenge of the colonials, right? It, to some degree, it, it feels a little bit more like the revenge of the thoroughly colonised. This, this, the, the Hindi, the Hindi population in Britain is about one point five percent of the population, so it's not a threatening minority by any um, by any extent. And it's, I mean, even in London, which is obviously the most multicultural city, it's you know about five percent, uh, and and this is an extremely well behaved ethnic group as well. Um, if the part of Punjab that, that the family had migrated from, uh, it, it, both sides of the family had been Pakistani, for instance, I think this would be a, a, a more even more striking moment. So I don't think we can be too self-congratulatory about finding in number 10 another boy who went to Eton and went to Oxford and did an MBA and then worked in the city and married a rich wife. You know, th- these things aren't new. Kind of in that same, you mentioned that you married a rich wife. He has a higher estimated net worth than the royal family, not including all the, obviously, the holdings of the f- royal family that we don't know um, particularly of. But how do you think that kind of great wealth, particularly in this time of, you know, the UK sliding into this economic recession that they haven't seen the likes of in decades. How do you think that will influence the public's perception of him and then how he handles this economic crisis? It's going to be interesting. Uh, Britain isn't new to the experience of, of being run by elites, wealthy elites. Um, so, I, you know, in that respect, we probably, you know, we probably won't see uh, much, much difference. Uh, Labor, of course, at Prime Minister's Question Times will continue to make uh, a feature of this bug for Sunak whenever possible. You know, when when the budget in November 17 was passed, Labor's immediate immediate response to the fact that there was sort of an unexpected grant made for education, a commitment made to education in a budget that was otherwise very austere was, well, Six um, million is being set aside for Westminster, um, Sunak's old school, right? So 
they they are going to they are going to make this a focus and so it seems probable that Sunak will not overplay the card of the 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 child of immigrants whose family was was comfortably middle class but certainly not rich to try and ingratiate himself with people uh you, you know when he when he does play that card it immediately backfires and i think the other big pr issue was was of course his wife's non-dom status um which was reconciled so i you know i think the the both both the the win for Sunak, but also the limit on this, the, on on the possibilities of this moment, is that he's he's not in the job because he's a rich guy. I think he he's not in the job because he's Hindu. He's not in the job because he is the son of of of, of immigrants. Um, I think he's in the job because he's a competent technocrat, and. I think the real cleavage in British politics right now, or for you know for the last thirty years, has been less the difference between Labor and Conservative governments, because in practice, in terms of economic policy and in terms of funding of government services, there's not as much difference as the hardline base of each party would like to believe. The real difference for me as an outside observer has been the difference between the charismatic leader and the competent technocrat. Uh, And we see that that when a party is is self-confident and on the rise in in Britain, they they go with the former. They go with the the great um, charismatic leader, the Tony Blair, or in um, the conservative case, the, the David Cameron, or the Boris Johnson, the guy who who typically has a background in the media, is superficially extremely charming, typically doesn't really have the background in, in politics, let alone the economic expertise necessary to do the job, uh, but who is likeable, intensely likeable uh, across a wide section of the population, regardless of class. When that party has been in office for a while and gets a bit sick of itself. Uh, or, or, you know, th- ever since Thatcher, at least, the job of the Prime Minister is partly to appoint a cabinet who will simply support whatever he does. And it's usually a he. They don't want to appoint a cabinet based on talent because if they do, they're appointing their own successor. This is this is some, something that monarchies and, and, and political parties have in common. They really don't want a successor who is more attractive than them rising through the ranks. So they appoint cabinets of, of nobodies. Um, and so over time... This, this this figure, the Prime Minister, is essentially working to suppress elements in his own party who want to get rid of him. And eventually everyone gets sick of that game. Eventually everyone gets sick of seeing their ambitions suppressed. But the only, per- the only people who have had sufficient access to Cabinet office at that stage to be credible replacements are the grey eminences, the guys who, who and usually they are guys, who... Uh, have been ideological foot soldiers, but who know their stuff, uh, who have a really strong background in, in typically in finance. And, and Gordon Brown is the archetypal eminent Greece, the Labour Party. And I think Sunak is, is that figure.
uh, for the Conservatives. So I think he's he might be around until January 2025. If he's if he stayed in power for a month <laughs> uh, or six weeks, I think now you know I think he might be in it until the next general election. And the Conservatives as a party have no incentive to try and push that date forward with another snap like Boris Johnson did in 2019 uh, because their popularity right now is flatlined. Uh, they, they, they need as long as they can get to get people to forget 2022. I was going to say, compared to Boris Johnson, do you think one of Sunak's most important jobs is simply to be kind of less inflammatory? I saw a New York Times article recently comparing him to Biden in terms of part of the job. Yes, they're entering into, you know, they're coming off the pandemic, these economic crises, but also it is just to kind of be this, in a way, not necessarily salve, but just kind of dull to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, and to, to, to not be the story and to certainly and, – and, and selling austerity budgets – in order to sell an austerity budget, you cannot make yourself the story. This is he's, – he's the right guy for the mood of the country right now, I think. My final question then is right now, obviously, they just passed the budget and they are kind of lighting into – um, this economic recession, there's talks of how are people going to be able to afford heat in the wintertime, uh, schools and free lunches, stuff like that. What can history tell us about leadership and just kind of life in the UK during these times of economic crisis, um, perhaps how the government will go um, and kind of what uh, is in store for Britain? The difficulty for British Prime Ministers now and British governments is twofold. Firstly, the British public expect and and receive more in the way of goods and services, basic services from their government than we're used to in the US. And that's one of the reasons that typically they trust their governments a lot more um, because basic things, goods and services, are, are generally provided at a pretty high level. That presents a particular point of weakness at moments of economic crisis because it's, of course, those basic government services that are obvious cut, cutting grounds, um, obvious grounds for cuts in spending when you don't have the tax revenue that you need uh, and when um, inflation is, is through the roof. And the other problem is, of course, that like most G7 countries, the, the politicians actually have much less control over the economy than they need. They would need to to actually solve many of the problems confronting them. And in Britain, for instance, inflation is much harder for politicians to control than it is even in the UK, in the, even in the US, um, because of the the because of the way its its financial mechanisms work. So it's what we are, of course, all wanting to avoid is a, a rerun of the great financial crisis um, of, of earlier this century. And of course, th at this point, the, the mechanisms that have caused the problem are different and that the ways out of it will be different. Um, but I think based on, on, based on moments of financial crisis during the last 50 years in the U UK at least, there's likely to be a shift towards there's there's likely to be a shift towards labor um, this is going to turn parts of the electorate that were formerly 
that had turned Tory because of Brexit to, to run back to the comforting arms of, of a party who has long stood, perhaps more in rhetoric than in deed, but have long stood for the working sort. Okay, thank you so much. Um, that was my last question, but do you have anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Uh, not at all. Um, I wonder if they're going to, uh, other than let's look forward to series six of The Crown. <laughs> yes, they might add more seasons after this year. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, then thank you so much uh, for being on with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure, Annie. Thanks for having me.